different tonight. Just had some technical stuff this afternoon, and just whoever's running the slides tonight, just going to be main points uh, and maybe a couple quotes, and that's about it. Uh, so I encourage you to follow along in 1 Samuel chapter number 11. And if you received the handout tonight, I'll give you the, uh, the notes as we go along. But as we get into chapter 11 of 1 Samuel in our series entitled A Tale of Three Rulers, we see two of those rulers on display in uh, Samuel and Saul, and haven't gotten to David yet. He comes in a couple chapters, but uh, we see in 1 Samuel chapter number 11, uh, kind of a piece of history. And on the back of your handout tonight, you have a map. We won't have that on the screen tonight, but uh, on the back of your handout, and you kind of flip over for reference when we get there. Uh, but just to give you a, a, some background of what has happened uh, years before this event. The children of Israel went through a period of time uh, where they went to battle against each other. Uh, the period of the judges in chapter number 21, they went back and forth uh, against several tribes where they felt like they had been mistreated by one another. And in chapter number 21 of the book of Judges, uh, they had gone to war with the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was an outlier, that tribe, and they went to war against the entire rest of the nation. And so they were eventually defeated, but not without a great cost to their tribal heritage. And when we get to chapter number 21, we see when they take inventory of those who, after they went to battle, uh, they kind of took an inventory of, like, all right, who do we kind of high-five and celebrate and share the victory with? And as they take inventory and start counting heads, they realize that, uh, there's a people group that didn't show up to fight, and that's the people of Jabesh-Gilead. And on the back of your map, you'll see uh, the town and the country mentioned there. It was the tribe of Manasseh. Manasseh didn't show up to fight. Uh, so what do they do? They confront them on it uh, because of their decision, and they go to war with them. And they killed almost, uh, almost all of the men and uh, a lot of the women who had been with a man, and they said, how are we going to replenish uh, this people group? How are they going to uh, get back to Jabesh Gilead to help? And so they find 400 young versions from uh, Jabesh Gilead uh, to replenish the families of the Benjamites. So went to war with two different groups, two different tribes, and wiped out most of the heritage of Benjamin. Said, how do we rebuild that? Uh, they punished Jabesh Gilead for what they had done by not showing up. And the women who were left over in Jabesh Gilead, they take to the tribe of Benjamin and said, hey, replenish your tribe, your tribal heritage, and uh, replenish and, and multiply children through that uh, people group. And you say, Pastor, why is that necessary? Because it's necessary when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 11, who needs help? Who needs help? All right, look at verse number 1. And if you're taking notes tonight in uh, your handout, I want you to write down number 1, the conditions the conditions. It says, Then Nahash the Ammonite came up. Now, the Ammonites were enemies of the people of God. They were Gentiles. Uh, the Ammonites came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. Remember, this is the group that didn't go to fight against Benjamin. Uh, they were ransacked. They took uh, young virgins from them, took them to Benjamin. Uh, they were outcasts. They were, hey, we're, we don't, we're not going to mess with Jabesh Gilead. We're going to leave them alone. Uh, we're going to punish them. But we see in verse 1 that the enemy comes up against Jabesh Gilead. It says, And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all of your right eyes, and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. 
And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coasts of Israel. And then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul, and told the tidings in the ears of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. And behold, Saul came after the herd out of the field. And Saul said, What aileth the people that they weep? And they told him the tidings of the men of Jabesh. Saul is in Gibeah. Remember, he lived, he's gone back to his hometown. He's living out his selection to be the first king of Israel. And the people of Jabesh-Gilead, the missing people group, when they went to war, went outside one day and realized that their city, their nation, was engulfed by the enemy. Uh, they send out messengers. Please don't hurt us. Please don't kill us. We'll do whatever you want us to do, even including being your servants. We'll serve you for life. They're in effect telling Nahash with this covenant in verse number 1 and 2, if you will let us live, we'll serve you forever. Now what's interesting about this is the time period. Because if you remember in our uh, passage two weeks ago in chapter 10 in verse number 20, it says, and when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near... The tribe of Benjamin was taken. Now, why is that significant? Because at this point in the nation's history, they had a king. They already had a leader. They had chosen Saul. God hand-selected Saul. They uh, anointed him. They saw him become king. Every tribe was aware of this decision. But in verse number 2, or verse number 1, the people of Jabesh-Gilead said, it doesn't matter that we have a king, we want to live. They were quick to give up their right of kingship to someone else. And maybe the time period is overlapping, maybe the people knew by this time, but why would they be so quick to hand over their rights to another king? A great question for us today. Jesus comes into our life and passes by. We receive him as our personal savior. He comes and calls to us to follow him and we tell him by our actions that we made a commitment to another king. We tell him that, hey, it doesn't matter that you've done this for us. It doesn't matter that you have been at crowned the leader. We want somebody else to run our life. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that it would make sense that the one who died for us should be the one that we follow. The one that came down and lived a perfect life and died for our sins should be the one who deserves our allegiance. The one who died for us deserves our obedience. And these people made no mention, didn't put up a fight, didn't say anything about Saul being our, their king, Saul being their leader. Instead, they said, hey, we'll serve you. We'll follow you. All they were looking for was a way out. And sadly, there are a lot of people today who call themselves Christians who are looking for the exit door when it comes to the war that all of us are engaged in. They're looking for a way out of the Christian fight. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand. He said, you need to be in. We're not called to get out of the fight. We're called to armor up in the fight. We're called to stand in the evil day. We're told to be ready for battle. Uh, Max Lucado said, God never said the journey would be easy, but he did say the arrival would be worthwhile. 
He didn't say the journey would be easy, but he said the arrival would be worthwhile. Some people don't go into battle because they're afraid of what the enemy might say about them or they'll be labeled as something they're against. Uh, They'll get called a Christian. And Christianity is not a religion of hate, but of love. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said, The true soldier fights not because he hates what is in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. You think about the greatest generation. Tom Brokaw wrote the book years ago, and it's a bestseller and a great book. But the greatest generation went off to war, fought World War II, came back and rebuilt the nation, the greatest generation. But they didn't fight because there was a hatred for the enemy so much as there was a love for the people they were fighting for. The fact that there was a people that they wanted to help, they wanted to serve. Uh, We were at our couples retreat last week and on Thursday evening a gentleman came out, an older man, and he was wearing a veteran hat, Navy, and talked about the ship that he was stationed on. And as he was coming out, we were coming in, and I said, Sir, thank you for your service. And he stopped, and this doesn't happen very often, but it was ironic to me. He said, You're very welcome. It was an honor to serve, and you're worth it. That kind of rocked me back a little bit. Because I'm thinking, you know, most, most men or women you think just, You're welcome, you're welcome, you're welcome. I've never had a response like that. Thank you very much. It was an honor to serve, and you were worth it. And I wonder how many times in the Christian army that we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, you know, it's an honor to serve, and you're worth it. How often do we look at the Lord Jesus Christ and say, it's an honor to serve, and he's worth it. He's worth it. Is that our mentality, or are we quick to look for the exit sign when things get tough? When things don't go our way, when we experience heartache and hardship and trouble, are we looking for a way out? Because this way out seemed rather extreme. Nahash comes back in verse number 2 and says, Hey, I'll let you serve, I'll let you live, but this is what it's going to cost. You know, you think about in our life today, the devil doesn't do deals. The devil doesn't do deals. And we cannot make a deal with the enemy without it costing more than we realize. I'm sure that these people thought, man, if if they'll just hear us and they'll let us serve them, they'll let us live. But Nahash was out for blood. Nahash wasn't concerned about their tribal heritage. He wasn't concerned about their integrity and who they were and the fact that they would serve. He was out for more. And that's who our enemy is. He's out to get us. He's out for more. Satan has never had a merciful day in his existence. And he's not going to start with you. He's not going to start with me. He wants to destroy our life. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 10 verse 10, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. That is Satan's M.O., That is who he is. It is what he does. So what was their response? They said, we'll serve. Let us live. We'll serve. Nahash said, if you want to serve, it's going to cost all of your eyes. Why was that a big deal? Because with only one eye, they couldn't fight. 
They couldn't fight back. They'd be rendered useless in battle. Their depth perception would be taken away. They would be slaves the rest of their life. Like their forefathers, they'd be resorted back to slavery. So when you think about this, this is really extreme. So what did they respond? Verse 3, And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days respite. Hey, let us send out messages. For seven days, let us send out messages to see if anybody comes to our aid. If somebody will come and help us, so be it. And what's interesting to me here is that they had a God in heaven they could have called out to. What do they do? Instead of reaching out to God, instead of crying out to Him, remember Samuel told them just one chapter before, in chapter 10, verse 19, and ye have this day rejected your God, who Himself saved you out of all your adversaries and your tribulations. They had someone who had saved them again and again and again, but they don't bother calling Him. They said, let us get some help somewhere else. They had turned from the Lord, and instead of calling to him, they started sending messengers. What a sad state that they would double down on their decision to help from a source other than the Lord. A sad day. And word starts to trickle out. In verse number 4, it says, Then came the messengers of, to Gibeah of Saul. And word starts coming in into town, into Gibeah, 17 miles away from Jabesh Gilead, word starts to come in and people are devastated of the news. They don't know what's going on. And this is their first challenge since anointing Saul. First challenge. And they mourn. That's their response. They could have said, Lord, help us. We're sorry. We shouldn't have done. We shouldn't have rejected you. We need you. But that wasn't their response. They responded in mourning. It's surprising how people respond when they don't have hope. Whether it's the funeral of someone who their family members lost and they know that there's no hope. Or it's uh, whether it's trying to live on my own instead of going to the Lord for help, no hope. Our response says where our hope is found. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my rock, my strength. My song. First uh, Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Is our hope found in Christ? Is our hope found in Jesus? We see the number one, the conditions that were there, but number two, we see the courage. In verse number 6, Saul comes back from leading his oxen to find all these people mourning, weeping. And when he inquires, he hears the whole story. He hears what's going on. What's, uh, to me, we see in verse number 5, they didn't come to Saul for help. They came to the people for help. It was a message. It was news, but it wasn't help. Did they really even believe that Saul was their leader at this point? Remember, he didn't even want to be king in the first place. Remember when they got together and they drew his tribe, they drew his family, they drew his father, and then where's Saul? He's hiding. Remember, he's hiding in the garbage in chapter 10. He's hiding among all the stuff. It Could it have been that they didn't really fully ascribe to his authority? They didn't really believe that he was in charge? How would they follow this leader of donkeys? That's what he's doing. He's leading the herd, in verse number 5, out in the field. Hadn't even done anything. Why should they be courageous? 
if he wasn't going to be courageous? Why should they follow someone who wasn't brave? And what happens next wasn't a showing of the people, but rather it was about the Lord. Look at verse 6. And the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard these tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. God's Spirit overtakes Saul and puts him in a rage. This is God-given anger. Remember, in the New Testament, be angry and sin not. It is possible to be angry over the right things. It is possible to not drive us to sin when we get angry. This is anger against evil. This wasn't the first time either that uh, the Holy Spirit, that God had come upon Saul. It says in chapter 10, verse 6 and 7, And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon thee, and thou shalt prophesy with them, and shall be turned into another man. Remember, Saul was afraid in chapter 10. Here he's bold and he's ready to do battle in chapter 11. Somebody totally different. In verse 7, and let it be that these signs, chapter 10, verse 7, let it be that when these signs are coming to thee, that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. Even though Saul had the Lord's presence in his life, he still had to act on it. It's not enough just to say that you're a Christian. It's not enough to just say that the Lord is moving in and around your life. It does not make a difference if you're not following where the Lord is leading. You know, imagine if I told everybody uh, this week, I'm going on vacation next week. We're going on a trip. I get uh, the family together. We pack the suitcases. We get everything together. We've got the dog taken care of. Uh, We've got all of the stuff ready. I've cleaned the car. I've got it ready. We load the car. We get everything in its place. We get in the car. and We set the GPS. We know where we're going. And two hours later, we're still sitting in the driveway. One of the neighbors comes by and, hey, where y'all going? We're going on vacation. Two hours later, we're still sitting in the driveway. The car is loaded. The suitcases are packed. Michelle and the girls are sitting, driving each other crazy by this time that we haven't left by now. But it's not enough to just know where you're going and know the directions to get there and have the, the car packed and the suitcase loaded and all those things It doesn't do anything. We're not on vacation until we're headed towards our destination. We have not started vacation until we're heading heading towards our destination. See, following the Lord is a lot like that. You can load the suitcases. You can pack the car. You can get in the car. You can know where to go and how to get there, but it doesn't mean that you're following the Lord until you leave the driveway. In our life today, are we saying that we are following the Lord or are we actually following the Lord? Are we on the path following the Lord? Are we heading in that direction or are we still sitting in the driveway? Many a Christian has received Christ, loaded the car, sitting in the driveway, but aren't going anywhere because they're not following his direction. They're not going where he's leading. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It indicates that we are supposed to be moving, not sitting still. A light unto my path. The lights that they would wear and they would carry would only illuminate a few steps. They might know how to get there, but seeing along the path 
would require one step at a time. That almost sounds like next steps were important, were involved. It sounds like the next step would illuminate just enough for the next step. And the next step would light up the next step. Psalm 27 verse 11, Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Saul makes a visual presentation here in verse number 7. He's angry in verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen, hewed them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the coasts of Israel by the hands of UPS. No, I'm sorry, by the hands of messengers, uh, saying, Whosoever cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done unto his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out with one consent. Saul does a very visual, vivid display. This is what's going to happen if you don't show up. Sends out the message. We've got so much time. We don't know how much time has transpired up to this point, but we're on the clock. Sends out these messengers. But he also connects himself with Samuel. Do you notice that in verse number 7? Cometh not forth after Saul and after Samuel. You know, the people still greatly feared and respected, revered Samuel, even though they didn't want his counsel. Remember, they said, we want a king. It doesn't matter what you say, Samuel, what God has said, we want a king. And we're not even sure they respected Saul yet as their king. And the best thing he could do was motivate the people with some kind of display and letting them know who was behind the scenes. And Saul and Samuel were joined in this effort. It must have been effective because it says in verse number 8, when he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. 330,000 people respond to the email. 330,000 people respond to the text message, to the UPS delivery of little pieces of oxen. This was vital and they all show up Together, Verse 9, And they said unto the messengers that came, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, tomorrow, by that time the sun be hot, ye shall have help. Tomorrow you'll have help. The men pass on the message. Tomorrow, in verse number 9, or verse number 10, Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow, they send their own message. They get word back that uh, we're going to have help. We don't know what's coming. We just know that before the sun gets hot, before midday, we're going to have help. In verse number 10, tomorrow we will come out to meet unto you, and ye shall do with us all that seemeth good unto you. Now this is either ignorance or arrogance. We don't really know which one. But it says that they got the message, and the enemy said, okay, The same root words here that are used in Hebrew when they say tomorrow we will come out to you means tomorrow we will come and fight you. And there was no response but to wait from the enemy. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like very good strategy. Hey, tomorrow we're going to do battle. It seemed like the enemy would engage right then. You would think, common sense, they're telegraphing the playbook. Telling them what's going to happen. Tomorrow, we're going to battle. But we see the comeback in verse number 11. Everything looked horrible. Everything was bleak. Everything was bad. They assembled in Bezek and then left for Jabesh Gilead. 17 miles, this journey from Gibeah with 330,000 soldiers. 
They made really good time because the Bible says, verse number 11, it was so on the morrow that Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the host in the morning watch. The morning watch was the last part of their day. Remember, their day started at 6 a.m. instead of our midnight. So the morning watch was between 2 to 6 a.m. Now, I don't know how fast you can run, but it says that they showed up between 2 and 6 a.m. This battle was done before lunchtime, over, before the hot part of the day. They were getting it to get 330,000 people. 17 miles. They left during the middle of the night. They left during the middle of the night for a total surprise attack. Before dawn, before the Ammonites even knew what was happening, the battle was already over. They had destroyed the people of Ammon. Why? How did that happen? Can you look back at verse number 7? The last phrase. Verse number 7. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out, here it is, with one consent. They came out to fight with one purpose, to win the battle. Can you imagine what would have happened if they would have come out and said, you know what, I don't like them. I don't want to fight alongside them. Can you imagine what would have happened if they would have said, you know what, that tribe, no, no, we don't align ourselves with them. Uh, They're not our uh, denomination. They're not our style. They don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't treat us right. When the fight came, only one thing mattered. Are you with us? Are you with us? Remember what Jesus said, he that's not against us is for us. It was all about unity. All about unity. What made the difference when Nehemiah gathered the people, rallied the people to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem? What made the difference? The people had a mind to work. They were all unified. What made the difference in the first church in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2? The day of Pentecost. They were in one accord. Much as, uh, my brethren, how sweet it is that brethren dwell in unity. Uh, unity is a very important piece in the Bible. And it's a very important piece in the local church. The local church. We don't all have to like the same thing. We don't all have to dislike the same thing. We'll all have different preferences, and that is okay as long as we have unity. As long as we have unity. Uh, You don't want to be like me. I don't want to be like you. I want us to be exactly who God has created us to be. At the end of the day, God has assembled his team together. It's called the local church. And we are to be who he has created us to be. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 10. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Walking together. Philippians 1.27. Striving 
together, not against, striving together, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, linked together, striving together. Why? For the faith of the gospel. Unity is very important, vital for the local church. Just another reminder that we're all engaged in a battle for the souls of men. We have an enemy who does not want us to have unity, who does not want us to fight together, who does not want us to be joined arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder for the sake of the gospel. He wants to divide us, and he will stop at nothing, church. Stop at nothing to divide us. He'll use preference. He'll use all kinds of things from without. He'll try and separate us and get us one-on-one, all for the purpose of disrupting what God is trying to unify, what God is trying to put together. Uh, he does that in the, in the home as well. Remember, uh, maybe you heard something like this when you stood before a congregation or a group of people, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. The local church. Hey, remember he said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell. What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. It's not our work. It's not, this is Heath Spivey's doing. This is your doing. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. It is unifying to be a part of His work. And their strength was found in numbers, but not only that, the fact that they were united for a cause. George Swinnick said, Satan watcheth for those vessels that sail without a convoy. Satan watcheth for those vessels that sail without a convoy. Satan would love to get you all by yourself, all alone, separated from the group for an, in an effort to disrupt you, to teach you and show you that you don't need friends, you don't need accountability, you don't need a local church, you don't need a mentor, you don't need to be discipled, you don't need to be growing in grace. And before you know it, you're in his clutches wondering, how in the world did that happen? Because we got separated, we got pushed away, separated off from the group, walked away. Hey, we need each other. We need each other. Uh, We talked about anchor points a few weeks ago. We need those anchor points in our life to stay united. John chapter 8, verse 44. We see who Satan is. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees and said, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. The devil is not to be trusted. Not to be trusted. And then lastly, we see the confidence in verse number 12. And the people said unto Samuel, here it is, all of a sudden they're really bold. Remember, verse number 4, they were weeping, they were mourning, they were depressed, they were discouraged. And in verse number 12, they had won. Verse 12, and the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Remember, they were brave all of a sudden. At the end of chapter number 10, there was a certain group that said, we're not going to follow Saul. We're not going to do that. He hasn't earned the right. He doesn't deserve our uh, faithfulness. And these people said, hey, let's put them to death. Who is it that steps up and saves them? Look at verse number 13. And Saul said, there shall not a man be put to death this day, for today... 
the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Saul steps up and says, we're not going to do that. God has done our fighting for us, and it is enough. It is enough. Now look at the response in verse number 14. Then said Samuel to the people, Saul's already spoken. Samuel says to the people, come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. Remember, they fought together. They were united together in battle. They had seen God do the victory. And then there was a temptation to fragment off. Saul speaks up as the leader and says, we're not doing, no, 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 no. We're together. We're united. God fought for us. We're not going to do that. And sometimes in the local church, it takes one or two people to say, hey, uh, 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 we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Uh, we're we're going to stay united. Uh, we're going to renew this relationship. We're going to get right. We're going to make sure that we're still on the same page. We're still on the same team. Saul steps up and says, no, we're not doing that. We're, we're not going to fragment what God is trying to build up. And what Samuel do? He says, let's all go to Gilgal. Let's all go to this place of worship and let's renew the kingdom. Look at verse 15. And all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Why is this a big deal? He was already king. This is a moment where they re-up their commitment. This is a place where they recommit their lives. This is the direction we're going. Temptation to fragment. Temptation to do something different. Temptation to separate. One person said, no, no. We're in this thing together. And Samuel says, let's recommit what we're supposed to be. Let's recommit the direction that we're supposed to go. It was an encouraging day. They had revival. They reignited their decision to be united together. But what happens? They went to Gilgal. Gilgal. They've been here before. Remember in chapter 7, and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went from year to year and circuit to Bethel and Gilgal. It's the place that Samuel directed Saul in chapter 10 and verse number 8. And he said, Now shalt go down before me to Gilgal. They had been here before. It was a historical place. In Joshua chapter number 4 and verse number 19, it says, And the people came up out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Verse 20, And those twelve stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. It was a very special, prominent place. And it was a place where they reignited, where they renewed their commitment to one another. But it would also become a place that would haunt Saul. Because if you go two chapters in, it was the place where Saul was waiting on Samuel. Samuel said, when I get there, we'll worship together. Samuel got impatient. And he went into worship by himself. He wasn't the spiritual leader. He wasn't the one designated to lead the people in worship. That was Samuel's job. But Samuel didn't show up. In the time period that Saul thought he should be there, what does Saul do? He steps out of line. And in doing so, he loses his right to the kingdom. What's interesting to me is the place he was renewed as king at Gilgal 
is the exact same place that he lost the kingdom. The same place. Say, Pastor, big deal. It's just a coincidence. There aren't coincidences in the Bible. It's a reminder for us that just because we have high places, they can become low places. What was Saul's problem? Pride. What's our problem? Pride. Pride is the root of every sin. Pride. Saul got to the place where he said, hey, I am a big guy now. I I am the king now. And it was his downfall. Hey, I'm, I'm big enough that I can do this on my own. Isn't that how we treat God sometimes? I, I don't need God. I can do this on my own. And pride goeth before destruction. And a haughty spirit before a fall. The same path you ascend on can be the same path that brings you down. Micah chapter 6 and verse number 8 says, he had showed the old man what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee. What does God require of our lives? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. That is what God requires of his people. That is what keeps his people united together. To do what's right, to do justly, to love mercy, and to be merciful people but to walk humbly, remembering that we're nothing without Him. Can we say that that's our MO? That that's our testimony, that we walk humbly with our God? Man, I sure hope you can say that. And if you can't say that, tonight is your night where you recommit. You come back to Gilgal and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, I can't do this without you. In Christ alone, my hope is found. This is the place where I recommit my desire to be one with him. Father, please bless our time and help this passage of Scripture to remind us that we need you. Lord, we are desperate for you. We cannot live this life without you. Lord, we need your ability. We need your touch. We need your strength. We need you. Lord, please help us never to take a step without you. Help us never to walk alone in our own power, our own strength, but help us to know that we are nothing without you. Lord, please use this passage to speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to go into our prayer time at this time, and uh, we have several things we need to pray about, and we're going to be handing out uh, these prayer sheets, and you can take this home, and I hope that you'll pray over these requests.